Yeah, so uh, we'll be in Exodus 15. If you brought a Bible, I want to tune in there. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you about some weird things from my youth. Uh, uh, uncomfortable moments. Actually, let's see. I'll start with a good one, right? One of my favorite childhood memories was uh, going to the lake all the time with my family. And we'd go camping, and my aunts and uncles would have their RV, and we'd have our tent, and we'd each have our boats or whatever. And, uh, you know, we'd fish all day and go, home, go to the bank and go to the campsite, eat some snacks. And then maybe the boys, they are all boys at the time, they didn't have any, I think my older sister's out of the house. Anyway, uh, we'd ride our bikes and race around, find some stuff to jump on or whatever, some bumps to try to make a ramp out of and do all this until we were just stinking hot and thirsty and go get a drink. And if we got hot enough, we'd go jump in the water and just play around like that all weekend. Um, but in the summers, it would get really, really hot, right? And the concrete's like hot enough to burn your feet if you're barefoot and all that. So uh, we were really glad to have the water around. Uh, a time when I didn't have the water around, though, that I hated. I don't like this memory, but it's kind of fun to tell anyway. It was football practice when I was like 10. And I was the, probably one of the youngest ones on the field and not the biggest and not the fastest. And the coaches would make us run and run and run in the heat. Oh, Vince is not. You know what I'm talking about, right? And the field we were on was not a particularly like pretty nice football field. It was just kind of like lumpy ground and not very glorious. And we have these oversized pads on that are refurbished or like borrowed. They stink from someone else's sweat. And it was my first time out there and it's hot and it's weight and they're like pinching you and super uncomfortable. And I could barely breathe because it was so hot, right? And, um, you know, you can't stop and, oh, coach, let me get a drink of water. Back then, at least, they would just like, it's like, no, you can get, you'll drink water when we tell you to drink water. And then whenever, you're, then whenever you do get water, everybody's like policing you not to drink too much because it's like unhealthy to drink too much water. And does anybody know off the top of your head, like how long can a person live without water? I, don't, I didn't look that up. Three days? Is that it? Man, that's not very long. That's not very long. And that's actually... It wouldn't be very comfortable either. No. No, food is one thing. Water is another thing though, right? Like you really need water. And so today we're going to look at first in this story in Exodus 15. I'm not there yet. Y'all are already there. Exodus 15 is right after the Exodus. So Israel had been rescued out of Egypt by Yahweh. And just after that's where we'll pick up in verse 19. It says, when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Well, this is the story of Exodus still. (laughs) Uh, When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and singing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. So they walked across the sea on dry ground. With all this water that, you know, drowned the enemy. Then verse 22, Moses made Israel leave from there. He said they set out from the Red Sea. Uh, scholars debate, this might actually be the Reed Sea, two E's. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Three days, no water. So you can imagine they're pretty, they're, they're at their wits end. Like you, we said, they would, three, three days about as long as you can go, right? And so they're very thirsty. There's no water. Verse 23, when they came to Marah, 
they could not drink the water at Morak because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Morak. So that's the Hebrew word for bitter or bitterness. And the people, because they don't have water, it's bitter water that's there. They grumble and complain against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Right? You're the boss, Moses. You're the guy with the, you're the hot shot with the big ideas. You brought us out here. You said God was with you. Here we are. No water. What do we do? In verse 25, Moses cried out to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a log. What's up with that? And he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So there Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you'll diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am Yahweh, your healer. So Moses cries out to God and God gives him a miraculous witness and uh, vision for what to do. And they provide uh, water for the Egyptians. So uh, there's another, there's more stories like this, like in Exodus 17, this very similar thing happens. Um, all the congr- let me start in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So, right, this is, the Lord told them to, to go out from there. They, it's, this is his plan. It's not really Moses. Moses is just the agent. So he's asking, why are you actually challenging God when you challenge me on this? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you do this? And again, Moses cries out before God, and, and God allows him to do a miracle of providing water through a rock. And so he strikes the rock with his staff and water comes out. And uh, they named the place Masach because everyone was grumbling. So this is a constant theme. Israel's going through the wilderness and they don't have water. It makes sense. 40 years they're in the wilderness, but they have a pit stop, an important pit stop along the way in Mount Sinai, right? Which is where God gives them what? Ten Ten commandments and all their laws. So we're going to look at one real quick, or let me just, yeah, I'll turn there. You don't have to, but it's a Leviticus 23. Uh, he instructs them to have certain kinds of festivals, that their dietary laws and everything. Uh, Leviticus 23, he gives them a list of festivals to hold. And we're going to look specifically tonight at the festival of booths, uh, which starts in verse 23, uh, sorry, verse 33 of chapter 23. So Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and tell them this, that on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days, you'll have the feast of booths to Yahweh. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you shall present food offerings to Yahweh. On the eighth day, you shall build a holy convocation and present uh, a food offering to Yahweh. It's a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. And later he tells an instruction that they're going to live in booths during this time or tabernacles, these portable dwellings. So everybody would go to Jerusalem and live. There's actually an example of one. Maybe you saw it on the way out here. Maybe not in the front yard. Right. So that's the Hillel's uh, campus ministries uh, booth. Uh, and they're in the midst of a season of uh, the festival. But uh, so this is just where God tells them to do that. And on that eighth day, 
of the of that festival, we know that they would the priest would go. This is by Jesus' time as well, right? They would the priest would go to the pools of Siloam, which is supposed to said to have these healing properties and everything. And they would collect water, draw water out, and lead a procession back to the temple. And the priest would pour out water on the altar uh, as a symbol of the restoration of Israel, this fruit-bearingness that can only come through uh, fertile soil with water and everything. And also, uh, they would at the end of this festival, the priest would re- read from Ezekiel 47. We're not going to go there. There's so many scriptures. On, we're on the topic of water, right? There's an endless list of scriptures you could look at. But Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14 were really important about the restoration of Israel. And Ezekiel sees this vision of a river coming forth from the temple. Um, and that's going to be really important. One little detail about the Zechariah verse in Zechariah 14 verses 16 to 17 uh, God tells them that this is, this is the, during the restoration process after uh, Israel had been taken into exile and God is telling them, he, and they're brought back and they're kind of in reconstruction phase and he, he tells them to, to continue to celebrate the festival of booths or tabernacles and if they don't, uh, then there won't be any rain. So all that is historical Old Testament Hebrew Bible background of John 7. It's funny that they're actually working with water in there right now. But anyway, John 7. Please turn to John 7 if you're going to be in the Bible. If you want to listen, that's great too. And we'll pick up Jesus actually at this festival. I'm in the ESV. ESV, English Standard Version. But um, yeah, that's the only one I have on me. But So John 7. We're actually going to read quite a bit of it, or I'll, I'll, I'll uh, do that and kind of find the per- most pertinent verses, I suppose. Verse 7, uh, chapter 7, what am I saying? Chapter 7 of John says, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not, uh, John 7, in the right place. Yeah. It says festival of tabernacles. In John 7, 1? Or a booth, yeah. Oh, Wait. Yeah, I don't know why mine's reading. I'm just going to keep reading. Yeah. Ye of little faith. I'm just doubting this is the right spot. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So they got these booths set up and living in them for eight days and all that. So his, verse 3, so Jesus' brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may also see the works you're doing because no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So they're sort of doubting Jesus's messiahship, I suppose. Verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. There you go. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time's not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, Then he also went up, Jesus did, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of Jews, nobody would speak openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but 
his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking openly uh, on my own authority. So Jesus is actually now in this festival period at the temple teaching and I don't want to say causing a ruckus, but definitely, right? People are not, re- some love it. Some are not reacting well. The Pharisees are still there. It's already heated and they're at the point where they really are suspicious of and completely want to do away with Jesus. They're looking for a reason to do that. Verses 25 through 30. This kind of summarizes that. You can go back and read it later. We're going to pick up in verse 37. On the last day, that's the eighth day of the feast, when they would have gone to draw the water and everything, remember? Uh, on that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he said, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he spoke this about the Holy Spirit. Remember in John chapter four, uh, Jesus is at the well in Samaria and there's the woman there who, let's just, I'm going to turn there real quick. John four, verses seven, 14. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, who, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In the festival of booths that Yahweh gave Israel, this, this festival that he made an extremely important deal out of, even after they'd been in exile and come back, he said, you need to get back to doing this. There were other things, of course, there, the whole law they were supposed to do, but that was part of it. It was a big deal. Everything that Yahweh had instructed Israel to do and everything that they were looking for was fulfilled in Jesus, right? So Jesus even talks about his body being the temple. And so, and then he's giving this spirit. So you have this image of the water coming from the temple um, and the spirit coming from Jesus in Revelation 22. We're going to turn there real quick. There's a beautiful picture. I love the book of Revelation, especially this picture in the end. In chapter 22, John receives, remember he's receiving this vision from an angel. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, verse 12, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So as I was reading these verses this week and thinking about what it means for the Holy Spirit to give us rivers of living water that flow forth from our life and what it would mean to look like, to live a life that that shows that, uh, I had to really dig deep in my heart and my soul a little bit to ask, am I doing that? Am I really, does my life look that abundant, not in the sense of my material possessions, of course, but in my spirit. Am I, am I exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit? And am I living a life of peace and joy, love, patience, kindness, and all those things? And am I being a conduit for the spirit that gives life and quenches other people's thirst? Am I putting others' needs before my own? Things like that. And so am I, am I that, that, am I feasting and drinking in life from the Lord such that I can have something to give to other people? Or am I just living and, and sort of, I hate to say parasitically, but just drawing resources from other people all the time? And um, this is an important thing for us to reflect on. And it's, it's important to see in Scripture that God's river doesn't run out, right? There's, there's no shortage on water supply in the Holy Spirit or in the Father or in the Son. So this, don't take this as a, as a harsh condemnation or a word of judgment. Of like, oh, you're not doing this. No, no, this is an invitation. It's always an invitation. It's not a harsh word of, well, I'm not doing that, so I'm not good enough, and shame on me, and da 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 No, if, if, if you're in that spot, go to the fountain and drink. Like, like fill up your bottle. Like, it's always there, and it never runs out. I'm sorry, so, I love what Ryan said this morning. Yeah, yes. yes. Yeah, about communion and let yeah. Jesus do his job, right? Get out of the way. Get out of the way. I mean, who are we to say that we've done something that he can't forgive? We talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago and how if you're worried about committing that, evidence that you haven't because, because you're still open to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, even if you doubted something at one time. And, 
I mean, Jesus' followers doubt him. They, even at the resurrection, they say, oh, you know, his own followers say, could this be true? They said it sounded like nonsense at one point. Literally, that's what the scriptures say. So doubt is not the same thing as rejecting the Holy Spirit permanently in the way that apparently the Pharisees and others have been doing. Um, so, yeah, at church this morning, a guy was talking about uh, how he didn't really have to say much at communion anyway. God's already done the work. Christ has done the work on the cross. And... Uh, we need to get out of the way and accept the forgiveness and let him, he paid for it. So one of my favorite sayings that I've heard recently, thank you, Anna, is uh, we need to start where Jesus finished, right? He paid the price for our sins. We're not supposed to keep carrying it around and beating ourselves up about it. And we're going to talk more about that later in the semester. Um, in our small groups, we started going there and uh, yeah, it's just been really good, really good discussion. And this is maybe the only start of like, who knows how many weeks we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So for those of y'all just tuning in, uh, the idea is to have a main thing on Sunday night and then small groups to talk about it throughout the week. What it's really turned into is like three different groups. So we're just kind of playing it by ear, keeping it loose and friendly and seeing where the Holy Spirit leads us. Now I'm, along, I'm on the journey with you guys to see where things go, but I'm very excited about exploring what, what God has in store for us through the Holy Spirit and through the gifts of the Spirit and really walking in freedom. So our theme this semester, again, is setting captives free. Jesus is king. And uh, yeah, so we got some discussion questions. We'll uh, still want to, even though it's small groups, let's have that table and then this table. Uh, Stanley, you're kind of in the middle, so you can still pick, I guess. Uh, you're technically at our table. But either way, Lindley left with the kids. She had to do what she had to do. Uh, if we have time, I'll probably save just a few minutes at the end, maybe five or ten minutes to like, ask what your table talked about and we'll share what ours did. But we found that uh, conversations, we just want to give everybody more chances to talk and uh, the smaller the group, the better. Right, Luke? So here are the questions. I'm going to leave them on the screen, but I'll go ahead and read them and kind of explain them. First, what's the difference between lives with dry hearts and lives from which living waters flow? Like just kind of talk about what the life would look like that has each kind of heart or either a dry heart or living water flowing from it. Second, in what sense is the water living? Jesus says, out of your heart will flow living waters. What does that mean? Why are these waters alive? Verse three, or verse three. This is not scripture. This is not, I'm trying, trying to versify our, so, uh, okay, so. Look at plants. Question three, what have you strived for at some point, which in the end only left you disappointed or unsatisfied? Or in other words, what kind of cups have you drunk from that did not quench your thirst? Where have you tried to get life from that it only left you empty feeling? Fourth question, how has the Holy Spirit worked in your life since you started following Jesus? And last, how can we give living water to our neighbors? Oh, 